Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Hey, it's Jackie, and we're into our series on the women in the line of Jesus. And today you're going to hear from Melissa Duncan as she preaches on the life of Tamar, whose story is found in Genesis 38. And if you've ever heard of her, and most of us have not, likely she's been presented as the woman who disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into having sex with her so that she could have a baby. It's not very pretty, huh? Yeah, Tamar prostituted herself. And yet, at the end, Judah calls her righteous. Why is that? What's up with that? Now, before we dive into Melissa's teaching, we need some cultural context to help us make sense of this perplexing narrative. First, Tamar lived in a patriarchal society, which means some men had power and authority over women and other men and slaves and kids. Patriarchy demands submission from women. It deprives them of agency and their legal rights. Women are basically property of men and they must obey. So we need to understand that. And secondly, we need to take note that patriarchy means that not only do men, some men have authority and power over uh, women, they also have power and authority over other men. And in Tamar's world, sons were ranked by birth order. And the oldest son was like, you know, the crowned prince. He had authority and a power over all the other siblings. Also more of the money. And then finally, we need to understand that in Tamar's culture, a woman's goal, her worth, was to produce sons for her husband. As Carolyn Custis James says, doing so was her duty as a woman and her sole contribution to the family. Producing a male child was also a matter of honor to preserve the husband's family line. So family survival depended on her producing at least one son. And Tamar has no sons. She also has no power. But she shows us how the vulnerable in society can act justly. And it isn't quite what we expect. But before we go there, one more thing. When you listen to Melissa, feel free to invite the spirit, you know, invite the spirit in to engage the process. We always want to hear from Jesus. So we have a list here that goes from Abraham all the way to Jesus, but you'll see it's more than just a family tree. Okay. Genealogies in the Bible are always there for a reason. And you may have even noticed that occasionally they don't completely line up with each other at different parts in scripture, but that's okay because the authors in the Bible are using them less for record keeping and more to communicate a specific theological claim. Okay. So in this case, Matthew 
What is his theological claim? He is pointing us to the identity of Jesus as the son of Abraham, okay? As part of the covenant promise. And he's the blessing that is for all people. And also we see that he's part of the royal line of David as heir and rightful king. So that is our genealogical frame, okay? We see our royal kingly priest. And within that frame, we see five women who really don't seem to belong. In fact, not only do they not belong, in some cases, they are distinctly outside of who we imagine would be included in the priestly or royal line of the Messiah. So there's a mystery here to uncover, okay? And my hope is that spending some time over the next few weeks in the stories of these women, we will draw closer to the heart of God and the mission of Jesus in the world. And our first subject this morning then comes from Matthew 1, verse 3, and her name is Tamar. And we have to go all the way back to get her story. So if you flip back to Genesis chapter 38, and we'll look at that together in just a minute. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was reminded of how growing up, I was obsessed with spy stories. Anybody else? Just me? I would read or watch anything I could find. I was fascinated, I guess, by the way that men and women fought to not only survive, but also subvert evil in the world. This won't come as a surprise, but I was always like the really good kid, you know, wanting my teachers to like me and having all the right answers. Okay. So the idea of being brave enough to go against authority just really captured my imagination, I think. And there's a lot of those stories. There's so many true stories from, for example, World War II that I would read of heroes, right? These heroes who did what seemed like some pretty awful things in order to stand against the evil of Hitler, okay? And at the same time, there were spies and soldiers on the wrong side doing the same things. And for them, we judge them pretty harshly for those actions, right? It's the perfect discussion for an ethics class, I think. Is it the end or the means that justifies those actions? And the subject of our sermon this morning is someone who has often been judged outside of the bounds of her cultural context and judged by the ethical standard of our current day, okay? When we read about Tamar, we see deception, we see prostitution, we read what feels like incest to us, and these are actions that we tend to judge quite harshly. Tamar definitely doesn't always look like a role model or someone who belongs in the line of the Messiah. In fact, if you've heard her come up in a sermon before, it's probably been used as an example of just how far God will go to save the lost, right? I mean, if God forgives Tamar, he'll forgive anyone. The lowest bar, the lowest of the low. We use it to talk about the grace of God, which is abundant and that way, that frame might be important, might comfort some, but I think it's a pretty limited understanding of what's going on in the text. So this morning, I want us to pause and dive into the mystery together and free Tamar from our 21st century judgment and place her back in her own context, where I think we'll see that Tamar used what agency she had to stand up for what was right. And God not only saw her, but chose her a Canaanite woman to bring justice and fulfill God's promise to restore the line of Israel. It can be a rough story, but the good news is all over it if you know where to look. Okay, scripture not only bears witness to injustice, but also records God's action on behalf 
of the vulnerable. So today we're going to use three different filters or themes to look at Tamar today. The first is Tamar as the outsider. The second is Tamar undercover. And the third and final is Tamar the overcomer. Now, the Tamar story covers most of chapter 38 in Genesis. So we're not going to read it all together. You can have it open with you and I'll be giving you context as we go along for you to check out later. But first thing I want to do is put her in her timeline. Okay, here in chapter 38, Judah, along with the other sons of Jacob, have just sold Joseph into slavery, their brother. The people of God, the family of covenant, have just fractured at this point. Judah has left his family and gone into Canaan to start over. Joseph is in Egypt as a slave. Judah has married a Canaanite, which is a sign of a disobedience spiral in scripture. Okay, he's no longer living like one of the promised people of God. But years pass this way. He, he raises a family in Canaan. He raises his family in what's considered rebellion. And in verse 6, we see he finds a wife for his oldest son. And that's where we first meet Tamar. Tamar is not part of Israel. She's outside of God's covenant, right? And she's very much not in charge of her own story at this point. Okay, her marriage would have been arranged and being part of a patriarchal society, she has a duty to her husband's family and that duty is to provide children, sons more specifically. But before that can happen, we learn that her husband, Judah's firstborn, is so incredibly wicked that God puts him to death. There's no more details because that's not the point. We have everything that we need to know how the ancient world would have understood his death. And it's noticeable just how far Judah has fallen. Now, because Tamar is childless, Judah tells his younger son, Onan, to take Tamar as his and give her children. This is, this is a ancient practice. This is part of ancient law. Their child together would be considered offspring of the deceased and carry on his name and legacy. Okay, because remember, in that time, the thing that mattered most to a person's honor was children. This was how your family survived, how wealth was built, and how your legacy continued. Culture was both communal and honor-based, and Israel and Canaan both had this in common. So as a member of this family, Tamar knew she has a right to a child and an heir. But her new husband is less interested in honor and doing what's right and more interested in his own profit. Okay, the law was designed here to protect Tamar as well as preserve the honor of the deceased. But with older son out of the way, Onan's inheritance had more than doubled. If Tamar had a son at this point, then her child would inherit on behalf of his dead father, the firstborn son. So Onan would go from inheriting two-thirds of Judah's estate, right? There had been three brothers, and with one out of the way, he would only he would estimate he would inherit two-thirds of it. But if a son was born, he would go back to inheriting only a quarter. So Tamar, his new wife, has actually become a problem. And here we see overnight she moves from bride to even more of an outsider. Onan goes on to use her physically, we read in the text, but refuses to give her a child. He takes what he wants, regardless of what that means for her. Because if I may be frank, throughout most of history, and too often to even today, women mattered less. 
So unfortunately, this form of exploitation and what we would consider violence is tragically not an unfamiliar story. So regardless of how she felt, regardless of how damaging infertility was to Tamar's own reputation and honor, the Bible doesn't tell us that she said anything about it. And really, would it have done any good? At the end of the day, Tamar was expendable. She had some rights, but not enough. She has a voice, but probably not one strong enough to stand against her husband, the oldest living son of a man who had already been proven by how he treated his brother Joseph to be violent, jealous, and greedy. And what good is speaking up when the person causing the harm is also the one assigned to protect you? Tamar, the outsider, must have felt so alone. Friends, I need you to see that there is one who saw Tamar. There is one who acted. The text tells us in verse 10, even though Tamar said nothing, what Onan did to her was so dishonorable that God responds by putting him to death, just like his brother. Again, no attempt to sugarcoat it. Listen, this story is horrible, but also it matters. We don't skip over it because Tamar's life matters and our most vulnerable moments matter. Even those moments that seem like God could not be further away matter. God's attention was on Tamar just like God's attention is on all of us who cry bitter tears that come from our unrealized unrealized dreams, from painful betrayal and life lived as an outsider. And I want you to hear me on this, okay? God not only grieves with us, but God has moved on our behalf. And we see in Tamar that God's heart is for the mistreated. God's mission is not only to comfort and heal the wounded and the broken, but to lift up the betrayed and abused. And Onan's mistreatment of Tamar was so offensive to this God of justice that God could not let him live. You would hope losing two sons would be a wake-up call for Judah and that things would get better, but he's not quite there. So we're going to shift into our second frame, which is Tamar undercover. Now Judah has one more son, but at this point, instead of taking a good hard look at his own life and his own family, he worries that Tamar, as a barren woman who has lost two husbands, might be the problem. See, her reputation at this point, having lost two husbands, having no children, would be at its lowest. She's obviously not a great wife and maybe even cursed. So even though she is entitled to a third marriage with Judah's third son, she's also expendable and not worth the risk. Judah's own preservation and prosperity are more important than doing what's right. And for a guy who was willing to sell his brother for very little into slavery, this just tracks. So Tamar is sent back to her childhood home with a false promise of a future marriage that she knows Judah has no intention of ever keeping. But at this point, I imagine Tamar's probably gotten pretty good at pretending, right? All she wants is a child. Maybe some of you know that same longing. It's not only her heart's desire, but also vital for her own honor, her own protection, and this also for the survival of the line of Judah. And so verse 12 is where it gets interesting. Tamar, undercover, has been biding her time when she learns Judah's wife has died and he's traveling near her family home. 
And in verse 14, she makes a decision to use the only power that is culturally available to her and to take what is hers. She decides to take control of her life and make one of those ethically complicated decisions that centuries later and in sermon after sermon, she gets judged for. But I want us to see what we think. So Tamar puts on a disguise. She makes herself attractive and available and waits along the path she knows that Judah is taking. And this tells us a little bit about Judah because she doesn't even have to do anything but be available. She just sits there and he immediately approaches her and asks her to sleep with him. Just for contrast, I want you to think about the very next chapter, if you're familiar, that talks about Joseph and the righteous way he dignifies Potiphar's wife and actively leaves from her. And Judah is demonstrating the exact opposite character here. He assumes that Tamar is a dishonorable woman. He sees what he wants and he takes it. But I would argue that Tamar here is doing something dishonorable, setting aside her own reputation because she values her own family's honor higher than her own. And I wonder, does this sound familiar? Guys, this is Jesus, great, 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 so many greats, grandmother doing something humiliating and shameful in order to restore her own family honor. What does Philippians chapter two tell us about Jesus? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself of power, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus was also humiliated and gave up his own honor in order that ours would be restored. Tamar here does the same thing. She is determined to not give up seeking what is right. That is the family heritage of Jesus. Friends, he grew up hearing that story. Now, Tamar has been played by this family one too many times. So when Judah tries to make an arrangement with her, she demands collateral to prove he's going to pay her for her services. She asks for his signet, his cord, and his staff as a pledge. Now, these are things that uniquely identified a man and his status at that time. Basically, she told him he'd have to leave his keys, his driver's license, and the truck. Okay? Judah agrees. They sleep together, and they go their separate ways. Later, Judah tries to send payment and get his things back, and Tamar's gone. She's keeping the truck. Okay? Judah is so embarrassed that he basically tells his friend, we're never talking about this again. And he leaves. Now, verse 24. This is the text we read earlier together. It speeds forward three months and Judah finds out Tamar is pregnant. And Judah is furious because remember, this woman that he has put, you know, put aside, doesn't want to deal with, still reflects on his family honor. Never mind that she was supposed to marry his youngest son. He wants her to be punished to the full extent of the law. Never mind that he had committed the same act she's being accused of and was allowed to continue on his way. But now when it's a woman who is in his care, his response is bring her out and let her be burned to death. Now we're about to move into our third frame, Tamar the Overcomer. But I want us to pause here for our group chat. We have a couple questions that we like to think about together each week as we are taking in our sermon. And the questions that I have for you to discuss with your friends or your family are, first, what do you think about Tamar? What do you think about Judah? Who is the righteous one here? 
And who in our lives do we tend to judge or ignore? And finally, what does this story tell us about God? Pick one, pick the one that's most interesting to you and talk about it as a group. And then we'll finish up when you're finished. I hope that this brings out a good conversation. I'm sorry to have left you in the midst of an intense part of the story. This is where our hero moment, so let's get back to it. We are here where Tamar is brought out to be publicly put to death. Everything she has planned comes down to this moment. And if you were thinking about Tamar as a victim throughout this story, I want to point out something to you. Let me tell you, the boldness and the strength of this woman is almost unmatched in scripture. I cannot imagine what she felt or what it took to stand up in the face of certain death and confront her accusers. But as she's being dragged out, she pulls out Judah's pledge. How carefully she must have been guarding those over the past three months, his keys, his ID. She says, before you kill me, show these to Judah. This is the father of my child. Pause. <laughs> what goes through Judah's head? Are you with me in picturing this? Tamar is by no means in the clear here. Historically, Judah has operated out of self-interest every time he has the opportunity. And right now he still holds all the cards. But in a moment of uncharacteristic humility, he looks at Tamar, takes whatever shame she is bearing on himself and says in verse 26, she is righteous, not I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And in that moment, that pronouncement, Tamar's honor is restored. She's been judged and found righteous. And not only that, scripture tells us she gave birth to twins. Okay, this is a sign. Everyone reading would have known this is a sign of God's favor and blessing. And here's what I want you to see. God uses Tamar and her righteousness to fulfill the covenant promise God made to Abraham. Tamar is the reason. This family in crisis, their line continues through Judah. And God not only sees and honors her for that, but chooses her, an outsider, to fulfill the promise Israel would be a blessing to the rest of the world, to other outsiders like her through the birth of her great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. For any of us non-Jewish folks listening, this part is for us, okay? There's one more point I wanna make here this morning. I won't belabor it too much because we spent some time earlier this year learning about Judah, but I wanna connect it because a lot of times the story of Tamar gets skipped over because it doesn't seem to fit with a story it's all about Joseph. But it's as though without that, our interpretive key is missing, okay? Judah goes from being someone willing to sell his own brother into slavery to, and has this dramatic transformation a few chapters later where he's suddenly able offering his own life in place of another brother. And we go on to call Jesus the Lion of Judah. It's, this is a complete 180 on his character. And I can't help but wonder if Judah had the courage to take that stand. Later on, it's, it, takes, it happens in Genesis 44. He's the courage to place his own honor on the line for someone else because he had that moment with Tamar burned in his brain, this picture of her holding his cord, his pledge in the midst of her own judgment. 
Friends, doing what is right takes courage, but that risk can transform not only our own lives, but people we don't even know that are watching. This is great, great grandma Tamar. She spent most of her life on the outside, not very important, even by her own family standards, but she boldly stepped into God's purposes to grow and be good news for the world. And in turn, God takes this woman who is expendable to others and elevates her to God's royal line. This is the God we gather to worship. The God who sees the unimportant, the exploited, the expendable, the falsely judged, and the convicted, and values them in his family. And not only that, God uses our everyday acts of faithfulness like Tamar's to set history in motion. That is the good news of the gospel. Not only that God intervenes and acts towards our salvation, but for some crazy reason, God invites us to participate in it. The reason we're taking five weeks to look at Jesus' family line, the reason genealogy matters is because the God of the universe has, for some reason, tied up his own fate into our messy history of humanity. See, it wasn't enough to just flip a switch on sin. It wasn't enough to fix what was broken and leave us alone to our business. God wants us, so our salvation means we get woven into the family of God. And not the people we think deserves it. God wants the outsider, the weak, the vulnerable, the spiritually poor, the physically poor. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Friends, the family of God is an absolute mess. And friends, that is good news for us because it is there we find belonging and inheritance fit for kings and queens. During Advent, we look forward to Christmas. and We wait for the time that all will be made right. But our joy is shadowed by the pain or loss or violence that exists all around us. We sit in the reality of the already and the not yet where we can experience redemption, but also await the fullness of restoration. That's why the stories of these women matter. They deserve to be there. And they embody the spirit of Advent as they faithfully wait. They demonstrate the subversive hope that is available to us even as we wait for all to be set right. And as we look forward to the fulfillment of promise and the coming of our King. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed hearing from Melissa. I mean, one of the things I wanted to accomplish in this series was to expose y'all to a bunch of female voices and to see how women's perspective on scripture can inform and form our faith. And I guess I want to end with a prayer because like the world around us just feels like it's so full of injustice and we need a whole lot more Tamars in this world. So I want to leave us with Amos 5, 24. God, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And God, let us be a part of that. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.